0: Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on complex illness.
1: Hello, I'm Jillian Gustin, and today we're gonna talk about prognostication. Our objectives for this talk are first to discuss the importance and the challenges of prognostication. Then we'll review some tools to guide in your prognostication. And finally, we'll talk about a mnemonic to help you effectively communicate prognosis. So let's start with a case. I'd like you all to meet Betty. Betty is a 60-year-old female with newly diagnosed non-small cell lung cancer. Her initial staging, had CT scans that showed liver metastases, and we found out from talking with her that she rarely went to the doctor. And she asks you, as her care provider, how long do I have? So the question is, what is she actually asking here? Is she wanting us to actually be a fortune teller to be able to tell her to the day to the hour to the second of when she will actually die this is a very tall order and for the rest of this talk we're going to discuss some ways to help you be that fortune teller knowing that we will never be as accurate as patients want us to be in terms of when their death is coming So let's dive in. How do we help Betty figure out what is her actual prognosis? We do this in a few ways. There's different pieces of data that help us come up with that prognosis for a patient just like Betty. On the one hand, we look at that population data. And on the other, we look at functional status. And together, where those two intersect, will help us to estimate what the prognosis might be. So let's dive in. Let's start to think about how those population survival curves will help us with Betty's prognosis. What exactly is a survival curve? Essentially, it's just an estimate that's based on patient populations with similar diagnoses with the assumption that the disease trajectory is generally the same for all of those patients. Survival curves tend to be plotted in a very similar graph as you are seeing here. On that x-axis, that bottom horizontal axis, we think about the time to death. On that y-axis, the vertical one, that's where we think about frequency. And we plot it along that curve. I think many of you have heard the terms mode, median, mean. In general, when you're looking at the literature, these survival curves will use the median. And what that median means is that 50% to the left are folks who will not survive as long, and 50% to the right will be folks who will survive longer than what the median states. So it is just an estimate to help us think about where a patient might lie on this curve. The other piece that can be very helpful is to think about specific diseases as it's plotted on this curve. So in order to create these survival curves, you actually need some data and we have provided you with a reference card with some of that data. What you'll see here is a list of different types of cancers at an advanced stage, and you have associated median survival in months. If you look at the highlighted red section, you'll notice it says non-small cell lung cancer, and if you follow it across, you'll see it says its survival is between 6 to 15 months. It's important to note here that these references are always changing as we advance the therapies that we have for cancer. So for instance, the references here do not include the newer immunotherapies that have really changed the median survival for many of these cancers. I would recommend that if you're going to prognosticate to a patient that you would like to talk to your oncologist first because they will have a much better idea about the treatments that they're using and what the median survival would be for that actual treatment. So let's move back to Betty and look at where she lands on this survival curve. She was diagnosed in February of 2019. We know she had non-small cell lung cancer And we just looked at our reference card and realized that, in general, it's somewhere between 6 to 15 months. We're meeting her at that 9-month mark. And so you're seeing with that blue arrow where she fits in the survival curve. So as you think about her, and you try and figure out what is her prognosis, would you be surprised if she died within 6 months? Looking at this curve knowing that the median survival is somewhere between 6 to 15 months, I wouldn't be surprised. At the same time, it's possible she could die earlier, and it's possible she could live past those 15 months, remembering this is population data. It doesn't help us know exactly what the prognosis would be for an individual, but it gives us just a general guideline. So what I'd like us to think about now is disease-specific prognostic indicators. And what you'll notice here on this slide is a list of diseases. Each one of them has specific indicators that help us make a more robust prognosis. And I'm going to walk you through some of them. Let's start with cancer. If you go back to the reference cards that we've provided, you'll notice on the right-hand side here there are many different prognostic indicators for cancer. Indicators such as malignant pleural effusion, brain metastases, weight loss, dyspnea, all of these have associated mean survivals with them and can help you start to pinpoint your prognosis to be even more specific than just what you got on that median survival curve. Heart failure has some very specific prognostic indicators. And if you go online, you have a calculator called the Seattle Heart Failure Model. There are particular patient characteristics that you input, and it will spit out for you what your survival and mortality would be within year one, year two, and year three. I've listed all of those characteristics for you here, Keep in mind, it includes things that are patient-specific, also based on medications, laboratory results, as well as devices that many of our heart failure patients have, such as PACERS and ICDs. Liver disease is another disease that has an online calculator using different prognostic indicators to help you think about what the three-month mortality would be for your patient. So as you can see here, serum creatinine, serum sodium, total bilirubin, and INR are all the indicators that you can put into this calculator to help you come up with a more specific prognosis for your patient. There are many other calculators out there. There are ones for critical illness, ones for COPD. Again, as we talked about with cancer, I would really recommend that you talk to your specialist. These indicators are always changing as we learn more about disease trajectories and we have newer therapies. So please ask your colleagues to help you know what is the best and the most up-to-date calculators out there to help with prognosis. So we've spent some time now talking about population data, survival curves, prognostic indicators, and now I'd like us to switch focus to think about functional status. So here's that Venn diagram we saw earlier. We looked at that population data and those survival curves, and now we're going to look at that functional status piece and see if we can bring them together to come up with a prognosis for our patient Betty. So there are many function-based tools out there, and we're going to walk through some of them. I do want to take a moment to just think in general, for many of the disease that we're seeing, what happen, happens in terms of function. I'm actually going to start at sudden death. That's the easiest one to imagine. Someone's living their life, doing just fine, and then a tragedy ensues. Perhaps a car accident, for example, and all of a sudden, they have no function anymore, they've died. The other illnesses that we often see, the chronic illnesses, take a different path. So let's walk through each of those. Number one is organ failure. I like to think of that as a good example of heart failure, or COPD. For these patients, often they're doing okay, They have some acute event, they have a big dip in their function, maybe they get hospitalized. They actually show some improvement, but they don't quite get back to where they started. That stepwise, that sort of roller coaster change in functional status continues to occur until there's some catastrophic event that ends up in their death. Dementia is slightly different. For dimension, what you see in function is a petering, a just changing in function slowly over time. And then finally, cancer, the one we've been talking a lot about because of our patient, Betty. For cancer patients, they tend to have a function that's fairly stable for a while, and then they get advanced advanced disease, And the function changes, and it's quite a precipitous decline until their death. So let's dig in a little deeper in in terms of function. When we think of function, what is that? It's really our activities of daily living. The things that we do and take for granted every day. Things like bathing, showering, toileting. Do we have urinary continence and bowel continence? Are we able to put our pants on, our socks on? Can we actually feed ourselves? Can we get from bed to a chair? Can we actually stand up? These are the activities of daily living that we need to think about as we start to think about what is the function of our patient and how that helps us with prognostication. So let's take dementia first. There is something called the FAST, which is the Functional Assessment Staging for Patients with Alzheimer's Disease, and you have it on your reference card. It goes through seven different levels of function, and when you get to level seven, it means your function has declined quite significantly. And when we think about the function at seven and below, we start to be able to prognosticate. In your reference cards, you'll see that chronic progressive dysfunction. If you look at the fast stage, you'll notice severe Alzheimer's. At 7, it goes through stage 7A all the way through F. In terms of prognosis, in general, it's hard for us to prognosticate about Alzheimer's. Some people can live 10 years. Many can live 20 what we do know is that as you get to fast stage seven, your prognosis is, can be six months or less. So that can help with patients or their family and friends to start to plan for when their eventual death will occur. Let's take a moment to talk about some other general function-based tools. The Karnofsky is one that many people use and have heard of. It goes from a hundred percent function all the way to zero, which means the patient has died. And it looks at what they're able to do. Another one that's quite similar, although the gradations are slightly different, is something called ECOG. This is a a function assessment that was developed by the Eastern Cooperative of Oncology Group. And as you think about ECOG, what you'll notice is that anyone who has a function sorry, an ECOG level between three or four these are the patients who are in bed for most of the day and most of our oncology colleagues would not provide them with chemotherapy at this functional status. So again helps us to start to think about what treatments might be available and what their prognosis might be. You'll notice that I've also listed something called the PPS, and I'll come to that in just one moment. I did want to just make sure on your reference card that you noticed we have listed the Karnofsky performance scale as well as the ECOG. And if you look to the side of it, you'll see the median survival in months based on where they are in that scale. This can be a very helpful tool for you. I reference it all the time. So I want to take a moment to talk about the PPS, or the Palliative Performance Status. And this was developed by the Hospice Victorian Society. The data here is based on hospice patients, or patients with advanced illness. And you'll notice, like many of the other functional status scores that we've been talking about, It includes things like ambulation, self-care, activities of daily living. What we've done for you is added a special column for cancer. Please note that the PPS was not developed to prognosticate for cancer specifically, but we've been able to take the data that we have for cancer survival and extrapolate and add it to the PPS. So, for instance... At a PPS of 60%, that's when you're unable to do the housework that you want to do or the hobbies that you have are difficult for you. For cancer patients, that means your prognosis is likely three months. And then if you go to a score of 10%, where really you're not able to do any of those activities, you're not getting out of bed you're really unable to take anything in orally, and you may or may not be able to interact with friends or family. We're talking about a prognosis of days. You can use the PPS for any disease state. It can be helpful as a way to really pin down what's the functional status, but again, please note, what you see on this reference card is focused for cancer specifically in terms of survival data. So let's get back to Betty. We've talked about population data, we've talked about prognostic indicators, we've talked about functional status. How does this all relate to Betty, who's our patient? So we meet with Betty, and she says to us, well, I'm really having difficulty getting around the house, and as much as I love to cook, I just can't do it anymore. I have to ask my husband to cook, and he's not very good at it. So where would we put Betty in terms of her PPS? I'm guessing somewhere around 60%. So keep that in mind as we move forward. So, here's what we know. We have the population data and those survival curves, and we said for non-small cell lung cancer advanced disease, that the prognosis is somewhere between 6 and 15 months, and we were meeting her at the 9-month mark. Then we just discovered through asking important questions about what she's able to do at home and what she's not able to do at home, that her PPS is about 60%. And a PPS of 60%, we decided, was somewhere about 3 months' prognosis. So what do we say? Where does Betty land here? Well, I would probably estimate a prognosis of three months, but like many physicians, this is a really hard thing to say to patients and to their families, so we often extend it a little bit, and we say, well, somewhere between three and six months. And then she dies six weeks later. So we thought we had a good prognosis. We thought we knew what we wanted to say. Three to six months didn't seem unreasonable. But remember, these are just estimates. We are not fortune tellers. So the fact that she died six weeks later should not be surprising to any of us because it still fits within that curve. I want us to think that maybe it went in another direction. What if she died 12 months later? Well, that doesn't fit with what we had talked about. Functional status-wise, she should have died after three months. But again, remember, based on these survival curves, it's not out of the possibility that she could live that long. So what do we do with this when it's so hard for us to be exact with what the prognosis, prognosis really is. So I'm hoping from all the discussion that we've had about Betty and what her prognosis is, you realize this is incredibly challenging. So let's talk about what some of those challenges are. And I wonder, as you're prognosticating, or even just listening to this lecture on prognosis, if you're feeling like this. We struggle with how best to prognosticate. We know we have population data. We know we've got prognostic indicators but nonetheless it's uncomfortable because we can't really be those fortune tellers that we want to be. So why is that? Why is it so hard for us as providers? There's a lot of reasons and I'm just listing a few of them here. What I hear from my colleagues is they worry that if they prognosticate, they're gonna harm the patients. What if they're wrong? And we had those scenarios with Betty. We thought it was three months, but what if she died in six weeks? What if she died in 12 months? What if we're wrong? How are the patients gonna feel about us? Will we cause depression and hopelessness with our patients or their families? And when we talk about prognostication, are we doing it in a culturally appropriate or inappropriate way? Sometimes that's really hard for us to know. As physicians, as care providers, as nurses, we have discomfort with uncertainty. We went into medicine, many of us, because we like certainty. We like data. And this is a place where the data can help us, but it's not an exact science. The other piece is when we prognosticate, we're talking about when someone's going to die. And that is a very emotionally-laden conversation, and for many of us as providers, we're not that comfortable dealing with that emotion. Again, most of us are very analytical, very data-driven, and often when you're talking about prognosis, it's really about emotion. One of the reasons that we find prognostication so challenging is because we're actually ill-prepared. It is not something that we're taught in medical school, in residency, and in fact, when you look at the literature, textbooks, and articles, what you notice is that we spend a lot of time talking about diagnosis and therapeutics, and very little time talking about prognosis. There is a lot of data out there about what our patients want in terms of prognosis. And I would invite you all to look at the literature. It's quite fascinating. I want to take a moment to just highlight a few things that you should be thinking about in terms of what your patients want when you're prognosticating. And the first is, they want you to prognosticate. They want to know how long they have to live. You could be wrong, and it's okay. They just want a ballpark. We also know that patients want us as the providers to actually start these conversations. They want us to bring it up when we're talking with them. Unfortunately, providers tend to be waiting for our patients to bring it up, and we really need to reverse that. We also know that optimism prevails, that for providers, we often over-prognosticate, meaning we think patients will live a lot longer than the data suggests. We also know, in terms of optimism, that our patients will find something to hope for, even if it's not longevity of life. We cannot take away their hope. They will find another avenue, something else to focus on. And finally, as we had talked a little bit about earlier, is as providers, we often miss those emotional cues. We know that prognostication is tough for our patients. Hearing that you're going to die is not something anyone wants to hear. And yet, when the emotions come up, we as physicians often miss it. So let's talk about, how do we actually do this? How do we communicate prognosis, knowing it's tough on patients and their families, and it's tough on us as providers? So Betty says to us, how long do I have to live? How do we answer that question? It's a tough one. We have the data, but what exactly is she asking? So what should we tell her? Is this good news? Is this bad news? I would argue prognosis for anybody is likely to be bad news. Something that's going to make the patient upset. Nobody wants to hear that life is shorter than they want and we're having a conversation where we're giving information about how long they have left. So we need to acknowledge that this is going to be tough on our patients. This is not good news. What I'd like to do is give you a tool, a mnemonic, to help guide you, almost like a roadmap, to having these conversations about prognosis with your family. And that roadmap here is called ADAPT. It comes from a group called Vital Talk. They are a national organization that is working to improve communication for seriously ill patients across the United States. They have developed multiple mnemonics to help with communication, and ADAPT is the one that we can use for prognostication. So let's walk through it one by one. Ask, discover, anticipate, provide and track emotion. Let's start with ask. What does Betty know and what does she wanna know? So I would suggest before you actually dive into prognostication that you ask her the question, hey Betty, what do you know so far about your disease? What do you think is going on with your body What's it telling you in terms of how long you think you have to live? And then asking her, what do you want to know? What would be helpful to you? For some folks, numbers are actually very helpful. I think about some of my very analytic patients, my engineers, my accountants, my scientists. They often want the data. For other people, what they really want to know is, Will I make it to Christmas? Will I make it to my son's graduation? So asking her, what is it that you want to know before you actually start to give information? And then, you'll hear me say this over and over, ask permission. Is it okay for me to share with you what I know? And if a patient says yes, we can take the next step. If they say no, We need to be respectful. They're not ready to get this information quite yet. The next letter in the mnemonic ADAPT is DISCOVER. So what information about the future would be useful for Betty? And I've already intimated a little bit about this. Are they someone that likes numbers? Do they actually want to see survival curves? I've had patients that actually want to see them, or actually look to the web and bring them into me. For some folks, they have those markers, the high school graduation, the Christmas holidays. That's important to them. For some folks, they want generalities. And it could be as simple as, I think you have months to years, or I think you have weeks to months, or... I think you have days to weeks. So very general information, taking all the data that you have and putting it into a format that that patient can take in and interpret for themselves. So, what if that patient is ambivalent? What if on the one hand they want to know their prognosis, but on the other hand, they really don't. That makes sense. That's human nature. I think many of us can identify with a patient who on the one hand wants to be able to plan for what's coming, but on the other hand, it is so painful to think about the end of their life. So what do we do with that? So what I'd like you to do is anticipate that there will be ambivalence when you ask Betty what she wants to know. That there's a piece of her that wants to know the prognosis and the piece, there's a piece of her that doesn't. And you as the provider need to think about the context. So if her death isn't imminent, how important is it for you to give her the prognosis today? What you can do is ask her, hey Betty, I wanna make sure that I'm gonna take good care of you as we know your disease will, pro- will progress. Can we start to talk about what that might look like? I know it's scary, and I know you're someone who likes to plan. Again, asking permission and seeing if she'll allow you to go there. But what if her death is imminent? What if you feel as the provider you really need to have this conversation soon? then you can bring it up in a slightly different way and say, hey, let's acknowledge this is really scary to talk about, and what I know about you and your family is you wanna be able to plan so you can make sure your family is well cared for. Is it okay, there's that permission piece, is it okay for us to talk about prognosis? So remember, You can't solve ambivalence with persuasion. I can't convince you that you should let me tell you where you fall on a survival curve. What I can do is try and put it into terms that make sense to you and allow you to drive whether we continue to have this conversation or whether this is not the right time. If you've made it through all of that, then it's time to actually provide the prognosis. Give the information in a form that Betty wants it. And hopefully you've done all that work up front so you know how Betty likes to process things. Is she that person who likes the numbers? Or is she someone who really wants generalities? From my experience, I have found that most patients want it in very general terms, and I tend to use prognosis that's based on hours to days, days to weeks, weeks to months, or months to years. For most patients, that's enough to help them start to plan for whatever it is they need to do for themselves and for their family. So, we've done the hard work of actually giving the prognostic information to Betty. And we should expect that there's going to be emotion. She's hearing things that she really doesn't want to hear. And we would expect that she could be angry. She could be sad. She could be shocked. There will be something there. And our job as a provider is not to ignore that emotion, but to respond with empathy. Let her know that we're there for her we will help her through this and we can imagine what it must be like to be her what if you have a family that says don't tell my mother that her prognosis is poor we see this all the time I get grabbed outside of the door of the hospital room by a son or a husband who says, don't tell her. What do we do with that? Some of this might be cultural, and so I can really only speak to how we think about it here in North America. And that is patients have a right to know what their prognosis is with the caveat that they have to want to know. So, I would suggest you be curious. Start with the loved one who's saying, don't tell, and ask. Tell me why you're so concerned about your wife knowing her prognosis. Help me understand where this is coming from. Often, it's coming from a place of love, as they want to protect the person that they love most from information that may be painful. And then we can say, okay, I hear where this is coming from, why don't we go in together and if your wife doesn't want to know this information, that's okay, we'll keep talking to you about it. If she does, we do need to be able to give her that information, that data that's important for her to be able to plan for the rest of her life and you can be a part of it. So be curious when someone says to you, don't tell. We put in your references what's called the six-step protocol to communication. I've shown you ADAPT. I wanted to add another protocol that might be helpful. These are steps that you can take to make sure that you're processing with your patient the prognosis appropriately with empathy. So just think of this as another tool in your toolbox just like ADAPT, which is the mnemonic we went through to help you with prognostication. So in general, what's the goal when you're communicating prognostic news? What are you hoping to achieve? And I would argue it's one simple word, understanding. We as providers want to use all of the medical information we have, those survival curves, the prognostic indicators, the functional status, to have an idea in our heads, and then we need to check in with our patients about how they want to get that information and make sure that we have a clear understanding both ways. So what I hope you take away from this is that prognostication is essential to developing a care plan, and that we as providers need to ask our patients What do they want to know? How do they want to know it? And we do this to ensure a good understanding so we know how best to care for them as their disease progresses.
0: Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends so you don't miss any of our new content make sure you are subscribing to PCIC podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PALMED, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open-access PCIC curriculum.